Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, March 21st, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If you're not attuned, you don't always notice when you're in a holding pattern. But sometimes, when you're near the end of a flight, you hear that slight dip in pitch of the omnipresent whir of the cabin. There's a slight, barely perceptible banking of the aircraft. You say to yourself, oh wait, I know the landing is coming soon, but this, this is a holding pattern. And that's where we are right now in the news, I perceive. The Mueller report is going to come out, but it's been coming out or supposedly coming out for a little while now. Biden's going to run, but it's been pretty clear he's been going to run for a little while. Britain's going to Brexit. They say, they say, but they've been planning the Brexit for quite a while. Trump's tussling with John McCain. He, he was doing that even back when John McCain was actually alive. Still, of course there's news. There's big news. Don't get me wrong. There's a shocking mass slaughter, but it is over 5,000 miles away, which is not to minimize the news, but we have news of 50 or more people dying uh, once a week, once every couple days, if we look at the right countries or the wrong ones. The top story in the New York Times today was about the Fed not raising interest rates. That is the kind of top story that you might get in normal times when the president isn't Captain Crazy Pants. But you know what? Even though we're in a holding pattern, what I say is it's a chance to get in there and weigh in on some of the stories that could be getting more attention. Like, for one, we have been waiting about info concerning Donald Trump's involvement with Russian spies, but let's look a little harder at Donald Trump's involvement with Asian spas. Lee Cindy Yang, owner of those Florida day spas that might have manipulated more than their clients' chakras, has been reported to be a bundler for Donald Trump. She raised tens of thousands of dollars for him. She took a photo with him. And as per the Miami Herald, which has been doing great reporting, she, quote, advertised her U.S. political connections while maintaining ties with mainland Chinese organizations, including South Florida chapters overseen by China's Communist Party. And she had shown scant interest in politics before Trump's presidential campaign. Now, the latest is that two Chinese-born tech magnates had their pictures taken with Donald Trump, the price of which is normally $50,000, which goes to the Trump re-election campaign. One of them is a Bitcoin guy who works out of Australia. The other is the founder of Five Mile, which recently actually signed a deal to advertise on the Dallas Mavericks jerseys. Are they shady? Maybe. But what really is going on is there are more questions than answers. The answers might just be they did nothing illegal. Businessmen always want to tout their access to the powerful. There's no indication that there was any quid pro quo. I mean, who knows? Maybe the $50 for extra services charged by Cindy Yang's spas could have just been for a really thorough rolfing. Like I said, the answers could just be in the category of light grifting rather than flat-out fraud, but I do think the answer should be obtained in a normal administration. Yeah, that, we've give, given up on that idea a long time ago. But a president, picture with these guys, in association with that woman who ran those spas, which massaged that owner of that NFL team, would raise a lot of questions. We would demand a lot of answers, and I would like more news organizations beyond the Miami Herald to begin looking for those answers. Thank you. That is my request for this our holding pattern.
On the show today, another holding pattern of sorts that I mentioned, Joe Biden. We're litigating his distant past as if his much more recent present didn't happen. But first, look at the trend lines. You have gun deaths increasing and white average lifespan slightly decreasing. And they are interrelated in the sense that gun deaths by suicide is one factor in the almost unprecedented decline in how long white Americans are living. But there are actually causal elements too. And they're all teased out in a provocative new book by Vanderbilt professor Jonathan Metzl, who asks why many of our fellow countrymen are, quote, dying of whiteness. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? In 2005, the death rate by firearm in the state of Missouri was around 12 per 100,000. Look at the most recent statistics, and it tells you it's more than double to uh, 25 or so. Why? What happened? Well, a few years after that initial rate was recorded, the Missouri legislature passed some laws that pretty much allowed for the most liberal or lax gun laws in America. At the same time, the state of Connecticut went in the opposite direction, and quite predictably gun rates fell. Okay, this is a policy decision, but what Jonathan Metzl, the director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University does is he goes to Missouri and he connects that law and those decisions with politics, consequences, and mortality. The name of his book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. How did you get the idea to take a policy and then go to Missouri and flesh it out through the people there. Because I think that many of us uh, encounter a statistic or a story and say that's terrible and have some sort of metacognition about the uh, macro political conditions that make it go on. But you went one step further and you went right to Missouri to try to figure out the connection. Well, thank you. It's a great opening question. Dying of Whiteness overall is a book about how people in the American heartland states like Missouri, Kansas, um, Tennessee, other places that I go in the book are suffering medically, biologically, and even dying uh, as a result of policies that they themselves supported and voted for. And so the big idea for that book really came to me actually when I was in Tennessee. I teach at Vanderbilt University, and we were doing some focus groups around the Affordable Care Act. And again and again and again, I would meet medically ill white men who would have benefited from at least the Medicaid expansion, something that would have helped them pay for their medications uh, or got them medical treatment. and and many times over, people would say, well, I don't want this expansion, even though it would help me personally, because here's a quote, um, it'll also benefit Mexicans and welfare queens. And mm-hmm. so there was this underlying and sometimes overt racial resentment that went into the rejection of policies that even, you know, you could say might help them. And so the story I tell in the book is, a, is looking at different examples, guns in Missouri, the Affordable Care Act in Tennessee, 
cuts to roads, bridges, and schools in Kansas and tell the story of these mortal trade-offs that people are willing to make in which they'll support, I'm sorry, they'll reject policies that might benefit them because they smack of big government or minorities. How conscious are the trade-offs? I would think, like you quoted your man in Tennessee there, maybe there's, he knew what he was doing. He knew he was hurting himself. I don't know that many of the people in Kansas actually knew that they were, you know, uh, uh, creating policies that would lead to more highway fatality. Absolutely. Well, there was probably a relatively small subset of people who would just come out and tell me. So some of the material I have in the book is quite shocking about people literally saying, yeah, I know I'm going to die if I if I don't support this policy. But as but, long as I take down a few Mexicans with me. Exactly. <laughs> Something like that. So, oh, so it's like, it's exactly like <laughs> David Crockett. It's exactly the Alamo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but the much bigger story of the book, as you suggest, a data story, is a story about how the risk wasn't about whether an individual person was racist. The health risk came if you lived in a community or a, or a town or a state in which Tea Party style backlash politics actually cut away services, and so the risk was, as you say, a policy a policy risk that um, people really were suffering because of the policies, and it didn't really matter what their individual feelings were about race or racism. Why are these people dying of whiteness and not just dying of idiocy or dying of I don't want to be too harsh, but dying of bad decisions? Why is it the whiteness? In, in the book, I completely reject that this is a question of education. In other words, I think that that's been a a, a myth that circulated. Um, in the on the a coastal myth, you, you might call it. Um, I think that people are trying to make sense of their lives, and when you're down there and talking to people or living there, you can understand these these anxieties. Now, you might not agree with them, but you know, on one hand, there are wealthy, often white Americans and corporations that are accumulating tremendous wealth, and then nipping at the heels of what you feel like are your community are. And again, this is not my position. This is what I heard: um, minorities who are taking entitlements, or immigrants who are taking up. Uh, uh, um, resources. And so part of what happens is you're caught in this middle position. Now, whether or not we agree with that, I do think that subjectively that's that's what I found. And so I did try to understand in writing the book how are, what are the stressors on people's lives and how are they responding to them? And I will say that even things that I went in thinking were nonsensical made sense in the context of, of this. And, you know, I, just, I think that's an important point for people to keep in mind, because if we call it idiocy, we're never going to make any headway. I'm going to channel channel someone from Missouri who maybe has a family member who committed suicide and maybe we would say is voting against his self-interest, Right. His number one issue is abortion, and he's going to vote Republican because they will either try to ban abortion or make it more difficult to get abortions. And there's evidence that it works. You know, there's two abortion clinics in there's one abortion clinic in the whole state, isn't there now? One abortion clinic within the state lines of Missouri. So he would say, my priorities aren't your priorities. I prioritize the abortion issue. And for every, I don't know what we, how we could count them, for every 100 kids who are on this earth who wouldn't be, be because of abortion rules, I'm happy with my vote. Is he wrong? Is he voting against his self-interest or is he voting for an interest that you and I don't agree with? Certainly, I, I acknowledge at many points that health is only one in, 
it's only one access through which we make decisions. We vote all the time and make daily decisions all the time for things that are bad for our health. I rode to this studio on a bike, not wearing a bike helmet. Mm -hmm. um, it was easier for me to get there and it's probably safer if I wear a bike helmet. So we're making more mortal trade-offs all, all the time. Um, I think what's distinct here is that there is a sense in which this, this rhetoric that I talk about, this I implicit or explicit racial anxiety has not in the in recent American history found such a powerful pl powerful place in state governments in state policy boards and it's really dictating health decisions for many many people across particular states and so I you know I, I don't want to discount the, the the person you're talking about I don't want to discount the fact that probably that sensation of winning of having a guy like Trump as president right. of feeling like we you're vote on the, for emotional reasons yeah there's yeah. this uh, there's this thing but I would just say that if you use kind of mortality as as your as your marker yes. that in a way we're voting for a lot of death yeah yeah I mean if you have life liberty and happiness is the reason why government should exist if you don't address the life thing the liberty and the happiness is somewhat beside the point is it patronizing this is a critique of well, this is a critique of what's the matter with Kansas and Thomas Frank, but it could be maybe applied to your book. Is it patronizing to say that this is the way that these people should be living and voting? I, I, I don't. I don't try to get in anybody's heart in, in this book. I don't call anybody a racist. Um, right. I, I don't try to say... Well, what I mean by patronizing is I, as a more or less, like you, centrist, moderate liberal, I, I support policies that are against my own self-interest. Some portion of my income is in the highest tax bracket, and I, I think that highest tax bracket should be raised. Okay, so when I do it, I'm a hero. When they do it, they're, you know, slitting their own throats. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that part of the warning, there's a there's a warning here. And, and certainly part of what I, I, I there are many interviews in this book that I honestly just leave for the reader yeah, to decide. Yeah, there's so, whole transcripts of right. interviews. Yeah. So, so I don't try to I try to say, here's a text and let's try mm -hmm. to understand this text instead of saying this is bad or good. I do try to as much as I can stay stay away from that a little bit, although obviously my views shape the narrative and the title and, and everything else. But I would just say that I think that there are some really major decisions about what's what's happening here. Um, and, and I do think that as a country, I mean, I, I will say that one of the ways we can interpret this particular book is actually that there are these tensions that are playing a part in white working class America. And I don't think we, and I'll say we as Democrats or liberals or centrists are actually understanding those. It's not, I don't, I, I argue against empathy, mm -hmm. but I will say, and this might be, a controversial point I make in the end of the book, that if policies that are terrible for white working class Americans are bringing down everybody else, then policies that are good for white working class Americans will make everybody's health better. And I think the Democrats have dropped the ball on that point. Yes. And by the way, if everyone's health is better, then our financial health will be better. Right. Then our national mood will be better. Then it'll probably free us to make better policies in other areas. Absolutely. We won't have to divert so many of our resources addressing the the, the fundamental foundational inadequacies. Yeah. And, and so I, I guess the point just to say it more clearly is that I don't think that Democrats should shy away from policies that benefit white working class voters yeah um, at the policy level and I, and I think that's been a, that's been a hurdle I wanted to ask you about early in the book and by the way compliments to you because one of the things a really good work of nonfiction does I as the reader it anticipates questions I have and then eventually they wind up on the page and you do that quite often thank you so very early on in, in the book I was saying to myself well he's at this meeting he's uh, all these people who have lost loved ones to gun suicide are making excuses for the guns 
what about mother? What about drunk drivers? They wouldn't be make excuses for drunk drivers. But then you brought up cigarettes, and I said, you know, I wonder if in you know 1970, if you did a certain kind of study in North Carolina, if there would be more making excuses and I don't blame the cigarettes. And I bet today there wouldn't be that, even in Winston-Salem itself. So this leads me to believe that attitudes can and do change eventually, and people sometimes see the error of their ways. So, okay, one data point. Uh, With one social phenomenon, society has changed. Another data point is you talk about Kansas a lot, and Kansas did reject uh, largely did reject these policies of austerity, which led to bad roads, which killed a lot of people. It's another, perhaps, uh, optimistic point. Add them all together. What are the chances that we get out of this vicious circle of enacting policies, clamoring for policies that hurt us? I'm very hopeful that we'll dig ourselves out of this. I will say that for me, it probably matters issue by issue. And so you've raised several important issues that are relatively different. In other words, the history of cigarettes is a very important history in this country, but it's not the history of guns, right? And so this question of guns, as I was saying before, taps into all this idea about self-protection and fear and resentment and privilege. And so dealing with the the question of guns is in part going to take um, what, we're, what, what we're trying to do now, which is more sensible policies, but it also is going to take a reckoning with what guns mean in a sociological perspective, in a racial perspective. And I don't think that's going to be like a big national conversation. But but I would say that the other main issue with guns is that what happened in cigarettes is that all of a sudden the makers of cigarettes became liable. And that was probably what changed overnight. And I will say that unless our Supreme Court changes from its current composition, that's not going to happen. But if gun gun death becomes a liability for manufacturers, I would say that that would probably be a major deciding factor. Um, but again, we would need a different Supreme Court than what we have now. So this, right. the story of guns is really a story about what happens when the makers become liable. And that that has been a looming question in gun for guns for a long time. But I will say that um, until we address that, it's not going to change. It's not going to change this issue. I do wonder if you took away the economic desperation that causes addiction or just suicidal thoughts or the addiction that causes the uh, suicidal thoughts, if we'd be having, we'd be thinking about guns in a different way. I mean, the gun picture, not in terms of mass killings, but overall is going down and not in Missouri, but overall things are getting better and better in terms of gun deaths. So what I guess my thesis is, I wonder if let us take a gradual decline in gun deaths in the United States and add some uplifting times for the working class and maybe we don't maybe it's not as dire a picture as it is now without even without the supreme court changing that sigh was because i've been working on guns for a very long time (laughs) and and i will say that in my experience in my heart and knowing people and having grown up in missouri i do feel like there are common sense middle ground positions that we can get to and so many of the people that i know for example support gun rights but they support background checks or they support gun rights but they don't think that guns should be unlocked around a home I hate to say this, but I think things are going to get worse before they get better. We've Mm -hmm. got a case pending before the Supreme Court, potentially, that's going to impact New York. It's going to have huge implications for gun markets and and for um, militarizing everyday life. And so 
I, I get asked a lot of times because I study guns and I'm also the research director of a gun violence prevention organization in Tennessee. What about Australia? What about Scotland? What about other countries that have come uh, that have dealt with this? And what I answer is that we're not going to do what they did in Australia. We're not going to have a gun buyback program. But the, the message of Australia is people from across the political divide actually came together to fix the problem, right? It wasn't imposed by one side or the other. And I think that until we have a, a real conversation that's a bipartisan conversation about this, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Jonathan Metzl is the author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Thank you so much, Dr. Metzl. Thanks so much. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Joe Biden has been drawing flack and attacks as if he weren't the broadly popular vice president during Barack Obama's eight years. Ah, yes. But that, was that really the real Joe Biden? Can we really trust the guy who cried when he was surprised by the Presidential Medal of Freedom as bestowed by Barack Obama, who said these words? He's got a, a voice of vision and reason and optimism and love for people. And we're going to need that, uh, that spirit and that vision uh, as we continue to try to make our world safer and to make sure that everybody's got a fair shot in this country. Yeah, but that... That's Barack Obama. I mean, is that the kind of guy who we would say is in the mainstream of the Democratic Party in 2019? Lots of pundits would tell you no, absolutely no. And the real Joe Biden, they would say, that's the guy who said deeply uncool things about reparations in 1974. Here are some of the quotes that were unearthed by the Washington Post's Matt Viser, as read by that reporter. I do not buy the concept popular in the 60s, which said we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. In order to even the score, we must now give the black man a head start or even hold the white man back to even the race. I don't buy that. I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation. And I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. That would not fly today. You cannot use the word damn it in that context. I mean, you can use the word damn it if you're on the for reparations side. But if you're against reparations, you can't be aggressively against them. Uh, Even though being against reparations, or at least not supporting them, is the position of three quarters of Americans, including most Democrats, though not most self-identified liberals. You can't be emphatic. You can't use words like damn it and point your fingers when you're expressing what you think is the right position and what most people think is the right position, and which I think is clearly the right position if you only look at the idea of feasibility. But these things, this idea, that happened so long ago. He's changed his views. Some might have said that he said things that have a racist framing. Some people do say a lot of things, as the host of The Post reports, podcast Martine Powers Notes. So the last part of that clip was a reference to 
the recent past. And here was the example that the Post cited of Biden's recent past. It was from 12 years ago, and it was really, really familiar. I mean, you got the first sort of mainstream African-American yeah. who is articulate and bright and, and, and clean and nice-looking guy. I mean, it's, that's a storybook, man. Yeah. That infamous compliment to Barack Obama where he used the word clean. So offensive it was. It's such a substantial claim that Barack Obama named him vice president and called him the greatest vice president the country ever had and, and quoted a colleague of Biden saying of Biden... Here, I'll play that quote, too. As one of his longtime colleagues in the Senate, who happened to be a Republican, once said, if you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, you've got a problem. He is as good a man as God ever created. Okay, okay, Barack Obama said that, but maybe he had forgotten this Joe Biden misstep. Joe Biden spoke at Strom Thurmond's funeral. That's right. He said kind words at the request of the widow Thurmond. I guess he could have spit on her. That'd be worth some points to the editorial staff of the week, which listed this eulogy as another demerit in the Joe Biden record. That he asked, I'm told by Nancy, a guy named Biden from the state of Delaware to be one of his eulogists. I'll never figure him out. And Strong, I won't forgive him. That, by the way, was just another knock against Joe Biden and Joe Biden's racial insensitivity in this article from The Week magazine with a, with a thesis that Joe Biden, quote, was personally involved in almost every bad policy decision of the last 40 years. I mean, where do you start? How about we don't? I'm not against the airing of Joe Biden's old quotes even if they did come as acknowledged by Visor from a top rival Democrat. I just don't think they're worth much. He also made very insensitive quotes about busing, actually, which were in line with his constituents at the time, but really are out of step with what we've come to know to be the right stance on that issue today. And this leads me to say that I don't think all of these quotes and incidents and past pieces of legislation championed, and I'll get to the crime bill in a second. I just really don't think they are a useful reflection on the Joe Biden we would get as president if we get Joe Biden as president. If we're asking what policies will Joe Biden enact, if we are saying what does his record show, which parts of the record should we look at, I think the quotes from 1975 are the fog and the eight years in the Obama administration, and most of his tenure in the Senate, that's the mountain and not the other way around. It's clear to me who Joe Biden is and where he stands on racial issues, which is exactly where he says he stands, which is to work hard to increase racial equality, to fight racial discrimination, and if elected, to be as forceful a champion of the black community as could be. Now, there are obviously aspects to Joe Biden's biography and record that are more solid as criticisms than some eulogy he said or some words about cleanliness. So there was the 1994 crime bill of which he was the lead author to which for every Democratic voter age 40 and under equals the mass incarceration bill. But to many Americans of my age and older who remember how important, how almost overriding an issue crime was in the 1990s, they might not remember it 
as a failure, they might remember it as a big piece of federal legislation that identified a problem, addressed the problem, and did a lot to solve the problem. There were horrible unintended consequences of the crime bill, over-incarceration. But A, it is not as if the Senate, after passage of that bill in 1994, when they saw what it had wrought, it's not as if the Senate or other states were powerless to address that. They just didn't want to because the Senate soon came under Republican control and the Republicans did not release control of the Senate or lose control of the Senate for another decade until the last two years of the Bush administration. He probably would have vetoed any crime reform legislation. The other thing is that Joe Biden has positively affirmed that the crime bill was deeply flawed and should have been corrected. By the way, 26 of the 38 members of the Congressional Black Caucus who voted for the crime bill have voiced at least some measure of regret as well. The crime bill is remembered as a piece of legislation that touched off a massive increase in the penal population that was passed over the objections of black leaders and that didn't really have an impact on bringing down crime rates. Every single one of those statements is false to one degree or another, but that is how it is remembered by many Democratic voters, or at least people who talk about what Democratic voters care about. My point isn't to relitigate the 1994 crime bill. It's to argue that ghosts from Joe Biden's past should not actually haunt him. They might not. I'm saying they should not. If the Democratic electorate were more reflective of the most progressive parts of the Democratic caucus, and true, the caucus is moving to the left, but if the Democratic electorate were very, very to the left, yeah, Joe Biden would be in a lot of trouble. But that's not where the electorate is. If the 40-year-old charges really did go to his character, really did explain his true worldview, then that would be an issue to point to, but I don't believe they do. I think there are plenty of reasons to think that Joe Biden won't be a great candidate. Here's one. He's never been a great candidate before. I don't even know if Joe Biden would be a good president. I also think it's perfectly rational if you're a voter who is primarily driven by social justice issues within the black community, I think it's perfectly rational to oppose Joe Biden. He's not the right candidate for you. I'm not that voter. I think the accretion of these complaints about imperfections of 12 to 40 years ago are not the most salient pieces of information by which to evaluate Joe Biden. Now, Jamel Bowie, my former Slate colleague, spoke of Biden's tenure as Obama's vice president as having served the function of laundering these spots from his past. I was thinking a lot about laundering. When the word laundering is used with money, it means taking what is truly dirty, what is in its essence, its quidness is that it's dirty and giving it the appearance of cleanliness. So that's one form of laundering. I hope Jamel wasn't saying that. But if a garment is laundered, is its true nature that it's it's really dirty? I'm right now wearing a clean shirt. It's not a new shirt. It is over the years acquired some dirt or stains, but they were they were small and they came out many cycles ago. I guess we're back to describing a presidential candidate as bright, clean, and nice looking. You know, a lot of people wear garments that have had some amount of dirt on them, but they seem pretty well scrubbed now in the moment. And these garments fit and are comfortable and might not be pristine, but they're clean enough. (music) 
And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They urged me to really question our guest today. They said, regret all Crete. If you spare Metzl the hot seat. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She didn't think that Metzl could endure everything I was dishing out to him. The Brooklyn Nets will win a title before Metzl will stay idle. The gist. You know, I found Metzl both a little salty, but offering a lot of facts to chew on. If his arguments at times tied me in knots, I guess that's why they call him Jonathan Metzl, Frederick B. Rentschler, the second professor of sociology and psychiatry, Vanderbilt University. Uperu de Peru, and thanks for listening.